Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. My name's Eric. If you haven't met me, I'd love to meet you. We'll be out in the courtyard. I'd uh, love to answer any questions or help get you plugged in by going to the welcome area. also want to say uh, hello to our friends and family online watching. Um, if you're new and you're wondering, what are all the banners? Um, last week, we had the privilege of starting Market of Hope. Um, where we make a concerted effort to help the gospel go to the ends of the earth and help more people know who Christ is through the church. And we do that through giving uh, tangible gifts that help them know that God loves them and Christ died for them through raising up pastors and planting churches. And so just a few questions came up I thought was really cool last week and be good just kind of help everyone walk through this. Is We had a kid walk up and he said, you know, that item is like, uh, $15,000, and I don't have that much money, but can I give my, you know, $3? And of course, like, yes, right? Yes, okay, so I want to walk through some of these and help you see that, you know, there are some items on here, but that doesn't mean you have to write a $15,000 check. Um, there's things that sometimes people get groups together, they just give what they can, or sometimes people will match when other people give, and just to help you understand uh, maybe the bigger picture of why the big item's on there. And so you can snap the QR code in front of you if you want to walk through this, or you can just listen to me, or if you have a catalog, that's awesome, and you can look at this. So the first one, real quick, is Haiti. If you look at the house, parent, apartment, of what it means to have someone full-time there for a deaf child so they can be communicated with, loved, taken care of, nurtured. Um, that is a huge thing for them is often these kids are alone or maybe don't even know who their parents are to have that role model in the house. Um, is a huge thing. Uh, next, on 18, if you look at uh, India, if you, if you know what's going on there, one, COVID is crazy and it's very restrictive, but two, it's radicalizing in Hinduism to the point where it's hard to promote the gospel, it's hard to be a Christian. And so there's two things there. One is the ability to broadcast so they can get the gospel out further and further as it becomes harder and harder to be in public space. Two is that if you're actually a Christian school, if you speak English, they don't care if you're Christian. Isn't that fantastic? So if you can get through the, the lens of being a school that teaches English, that's a, it's an easy way to be able to teach younger and younger kids about Christ and, and use God's word in a way that doesn't put them in jeopardy in the long term. That's good, isn't it? Yes, good. First service was really excited. You guys are like scaring me here, okay? These are fantastic things that God is doing, and I'm trying to help everyone kind of see the, the picture of what's going on. In Kenya, you know, we've, we've had a long relationship of helping plant churches and raising pastors, and one of the beautiful things is there are, there are men that want to become pastors, um, but they can't afford the schooling. And so what we're trying to get away from is, hey, you just became a Christian, let's make you a pastor, right? That's a bad practice, don't you think? Because 1 Timothy and Titus says so. It says that you need to be able to defend the scriptures, know the scriptures, protect the church, defend the wolves, and do these things. So they, they have the desire, but they don't have the means to learn God's word in a way that's helpful to shepherd and teach the people. If you turn over uh, to Romania and you look at the ministry center, this is one of the long-term goals that they could have one place where all the kids could come and they can learn and be discipled and have kind of a hub. But even the bigger picture is that they could allow a church to meet there so that these kids, when they graduate, that they have a relationship at a church and they have a place to still go, go when they're past um, the ages of being in the ministry center. And so to have a church there that they could be discipled and know Christ and grow in their faith long-term, that's a big deal, wouldn't you say? Yes, you guys are getting it. Good, this is good. Okay, and then turn the page. And if you look at Uganda, what's cool about this is this picture will kind of help you see is that's a picture of what used to just to be dirt. It was a dirt lot. And I remember being there when Wilfred said, Pastor Wilfred said, I want to plant a church here. I want a medical center to use to share the gospel. And now it's got a medical center, it's got an orphanage, and it's got a church, and it's there. And what Pastor Wilfred is saying is, I found a new dirt, right? I found a new place where there is no church, where there is no gospel, there is no Bible, and I want to go to that dirt. I want to plant a church, and I want to do that. And so to help him do that and continue in that mission uh, is just such a, a big deal and a big thing. So there's just kind of the bigger why and context to the bigger items, and just uh, pray that you can partner with us as we do that, and we're so thankful for that. So with that, we're hopping back into Romans chapter 11, if you want to get there. 
Um, I'm so thankful for Pastor Roger two weeks ago doing the harder passage while I get the easier passage. Um, He's older and smarter than me, so that's okay. So um, thankful for him to do that, but we're going to hop right back in, and I'm really excited because it's the last sermon in Romans 11. So um, Romans 11, 24 kind of hangs on this cliff, and 25 hops in, and it says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want to share a mystery with you. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning, is that God's wisdom is a bit mysterious. And so what does it look like to know what his wisdom has and what it is? And so I'm going to pray, and we'll hop in, and we'll look at it. Dear Jesus, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your word, that it's clear, that it helps, it convicts, it builds up. And I just pray that your word would put a passion in our heart to know you, to love you, uh, to want to know more about you, to trust you. Um, to understand that we don't always understand, but we can trust you and we can understand that. And so I pray our hearts would trust you and love you, uh, that your words would speak to us and that they would be your words and not mine. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so what you have going on is Paul's trying to help a church and he's trying to help them understand, you know, from a distance, you're looking at God's plan unfold and typically what happens are people like, that's kind of weird. I don't understand I don't understand the ways of God, the things of God. And what happens when people try to get into what is God doing and why is God doing this? They create their own answers. And so what we're going to look at is in God's wisdom, there's four things that help us. First is knowing uh, his mystery. Two is his gift and his calling. Three is his mercy. And four is his sovereignty. Okay? And so the, the extremes are this. One is being agnostic. A means no. Gnostic means knowledge. No knowledge. And what people want to say, when it comes to God, you can't know anything. Right? And so how do you know that you don't know anything? Right? That's kind of an interesting question. So that's one. Don't even try. You can't know. Just give up. The other is that God is limited to my understanding. So if it doesn't match my feelings or my understanding, then it can't be true about God. and kind of creates God in our own image. And so what we want to do is look at the text and it says, look, there's going to be some things that we don't understand and we need to trust God in the things we can't understand, um, but we also need to worship God in the things that we can. We need to pursue the things that we can and rather than do that. So here we go, verse 25. And so he's, he's trying to help them. Hey, I don't want you to be wise in your own eyes, right? Verse 25. So I, want you, I don't want you to be unaware of the mystery, right? And the mystery is this. There is a part, brothers, there is a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so what he's saying is there's this mystery sometimes on how God is doing things. And rather than you fill in your own gaps and draw your own conclusions, I'm going to reveal to you part of what's going on. And why he's doing this is you have two groups of people in a church, in a community that are fighting with each other. You have Jewish people saying you're pagans, you're Gentiles, you were polytheistic, that's multiple gods, and you don't even deserve to know God. And they're saying, well, you're Jewish, you put Jesus on the cross and you're bad. And what Paul's trying to say is, look, God has a plan for all of you and he's working it out. And part of it's going to be a mystery and part of it's going to be revealed. And so he starts off with saying that part of the mystery is that there was a hardening on Israel's heart. And to understand that, I'm just going to walk you through real quick because it's really important we understand from Israel's perspective, why would they be mad and why would they be angry and what is going on? Remember, we've walked through Genesis 3, that very first promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. From that point forward, you have Jews and Israel, they're looking for a conquering king that's going to crush a serpent. And then he comes into David, and they get a throne, they get a promised land, and they're waiting to rule and reign like we talked about in 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, Exodus, all these places. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he's a carpenter, and he has this weird birth that he came from a virgin, it's kind of awkward, and they're like, sure you did, and he has all these things, and like, and you're going to be a king on a throne, and then he dies, And so to call him the king that's going to come from the Old Testament, it's very offensive, angry. So that's why they put him on the cross. How dare you say you're the king, you're a carpenter, you're not overthrowing Rome, you can't even fight, you don't even have a sword, right? And so they're very angry and they're mad. And so what God is saying is, look, that's going to play a role. God uses that because that crucifixion puts them on the cross, puts them in the grave, 
And, and that puts a payment for our sin. And then he rises over that and allows there to be salvation. And it goes to the church. And then the church carries that out. He's saying, God had a plan. And you need to trust his plan. Quit calling him names. Quit picking a side. You need to trust him. And God has been revealing this from the beginning. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 says this. Uh, it says, 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So he's saying, look, this has been God's plan from the beginning. He's not caught off guard. He didn't create Adam and Eve and go like, oh man, they sinned. What am I doing? What do I do now? Right? And then people grow and he gets Moses. And Moses sins. He's like, oh gosh, I just can't get this right. He's saying, this has been the plan from the beginning. God knows what he's doing. So the mystery is not what is God doing. The mystery is why would God love sinners? Right? Why would a perfect, holy God love sinful people that are called throughout the Bible enemies of God, children of wrath, none are righteous, none are good, no, not one. This is Romans. Why would a God love these kind of people? That's the mystery. You look through the book of Ephesians, it has that mystery, mystery. So you're saying, look, this mystery is being revealed that God is going to love sinners. And so what happens is we start to ask questions like, well, if there's going to be a hell, then why does he create anyone at all? Does God give us that answer? No, that's part of the mystery. But here's another question. Would you rather there be no creation at all? Maybe some of you would, right? But that's God's prerogative, that he's the king and he made a creation. There's going to be some that because of his holiness and his justice don't go to heaven. There's going to be some because of his mercy and his grace that are going to go to heaven and be with him. And he's saying, why would a loving God do this? That is a mystery, right? But there's things that are not a mystery. God reveals his word to us. He tells us that you can know about him in creation, that you can know about him through his son Jesus, his character and what he's like. And then there's his word that tells us certain things, that he's holy, he's just, he's good, he's sovereign. These things are absolute and we can know them. And so the degree that we can know God, we need to pursue that knowledge. Why? Because it's a relationship. We've heard oftentimes in marriages that, you know, the more I know them, the more I love them. The longer you've been married, you're like, I love them more now than I did at the very beginning. Why? Because you know them better. You've experienced them more. And it's the same with God. The more we know, we get to grow in that relationship. So the things we get to know, we want to love and we want to worship. But the things that we don't get to know, we need to trust. And this is where Paul's saying, look, part of this is a mystery. And part of this you're going to get to know. And then 26, he unfolds it more. He's like, look, there's even more in God's plan. He said, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them, and I will take away their sins. So he's saying, look, God from the beginning was going to use Israel to reach the nations. The nations were always the plan. Israel fails, they reject Jesus. And he's like, look, that rejection, it's going to benefit the church, the Gentiles. Because when Paul goes into a synagogue, he goes there first to preach. They hate him, they try to kill him. And then he goes to the Gentiles. They love him, I'm saved, I'm grace. He's like, look, this benefits you. But that benefit does not mean God's ignored Israel. That love and affection that the church is going to have, they're called the bride of Christ. When he comes for his bride and they see that affection and that love, it's going to cause them to be jealous and say, how have you known the Savior? How did we miss this? I want to know that Savior. And he's saying it's going to come back and that hardening will go away. Now, when is the fullness of the Gentiles? We don't know. But we do know that God has said that at the right time, he'll send back his son to capture his son's bride, the church. This is why in Acts 2, they're like, is now the time of the kingdom? And what does Jesus say to them? He says, only the Father knows that. He doesn't tell them there is no kingdom. He doesn't tell them that the kingdom is already there. He says that the Father knows this. And so what's Paul saying? He's like, look, God's got a plan. So quit mocking him. Quit saying he doesn't love Israel or he doesn't love the church or he loves the Gentiles more and hates. You're all saved by mercy. You're sinners. The mystery is not what is God doing. 
The mystery is why would a perfect God love a sinful people? And when you can wrap your head around that, you'll quit fighting and you'll actually get to what God's calling you to do, which is to share about the mercy that God is giving you through the forgiveness and payment of his son, Jesus. And so he's walking it through. Look, God's always had a plan. He's going back to Isaiah 29, he's go, or Isaiah 27, and he's going to Isaiah 59. Look, there's going to be a repentance of Israel. They're going to see this, and that hardness is going to go. They're going to turn, they're going to fall, and they're going to realize Jesus is the Savior. He is the King of the Old Testament. He is the Genesis 3 promise. So he's saying, look, that's the full picture, right? God had a plan from the beginning that he would use Israel to, to meet and love the nations. Israel failed. He goes to the nations, the Gentiles. Christ dies, church starts. Church is gonna bring in Israel. Israel's going to bless all through that. He's like, I got it all worked out. Okay, that's our full picture. And so you gotta think, if you're Israel, if you're a Jew, and you're living under Roman authority, you're like, you're asking me to trust that God still has a plan? We're slaves. We're being beaten. We're being mocked. We don't understand that exact pressure, but can you identify with, God, I'm not sure you know what you're doing right now. So when people say they love you and they trust you and you're so great, I'm not so sure you're great because from my perspective, life's pretty terrible. Right? And even if you're a Gentile, you're maybe like, yeah, God seems cool, but don't cross them. Look what happened to the Jews. He forgot about them. What's Paul saying? God didn't forget about anybody. God knows what he's doing. God keeps his promise. God doesn't always tell us why and how and when, but he does tell us two things, that he'll show mercy, he loves us. And so what's the second part of understanding this mystery or this wisdom is that God keeps his gifts and his calling. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. So part of understanding the wisdom of God is he's not a conditional lover. He doesn't take things away and say, oh, I love you, now I don't love you. He's not like us. And so that's why now he moves into it. Okay, God said this is the plan, right? And he says, look, verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they're beloved for the sake of their fathers. He's like, look, I get it. They're enemies of the gospel because the Jews think that you're saved by works. They don't think Jesus is the Messiah. But also God's gonna keep his word. They are his children. He is gonna save them. They have that dual nature. God doesn't break his promise. He's going to keep it. And people are looking at Jews throughout history going, I don't know, these people are crazy. Till when? 1948. Israel becomes a country again. And like, oh, maybe God didn't keep us, forget. Huh? Yeah, four of you are listening. That's awesome. So you walk through this. It's like God works on a different time frame than us. And he's like, God's not fitting your time frame, but that's no excuse for you to mock him, not trust him, or make your own plan. God gives a gift God calls, God keeps, right? So when we think of the gifts of God, you gotta go back through and read Romans 8 because he's stacking this book so beautifully and perfectly, I don't have time to walk all the way through it. But what does he say in 8? He talks about adoption. You've been adopted, you're a son, you're a daughter. You've been given the Holy Spirit, that God loves you, his love never leaves you. All things work for good for those who love him. He's walking it through. These are the gifts, you have the Spirit, you have the Son, you have the Father, you have the church, you're forever His. Heaven is your future home gift. And he goes, you know what, in nine, he's the potter, you're the clay. Things don't make sense, it's a mystery. Trust him. And then this chapter is going to end with, don't tell him what to do, don't try to give him advice, just trust him. And then chapter 12 walks in, now worship him. Because chapter 8, he keeps his promise. Those things are yours. Chapter 9, he doesn't forget. He doesn't know what he's doing. Chapter 11, he's had it figured out from the beginning. So just go worship. Quit fighting. Knock it off. These gifts are still yours. They're still the Jews. They're still the Gentiles. Once you're adopted, you're not unadopted. God doesn't create you and go, oh, you're mine. And then you go out and sin and he's like, dang it, I didn't know this was going to happen. I'm really embarrassed to do this, but I'm going to have to unadopt you. It's not what he does, right? Because now look, verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That word has two meanings. It's without regret and it can't be taken back. God doesn't make these bold claims in the Old Testament and kind of he outspeaks his ability to execute. 
We might think that, right? We might look at it and say, you know what, God, you're just not really holding up your end of the deal. See, the problem what Paul is addressing is God is not the problem we are. Okay? Thank you. Next verse, 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. He's like, look, God's plans are irrevocable. God is without regret, but you are disobedient, and you actually needed mercy. What are you getting at? He's saying, when you think God isn't keeping his promise, it's your feeling, it's not a reality. So when we say things like, I don't feel like God loves me because of my certain current situation, because you don't like what's going on with the schools, or you don't like your job, or you don't like you know, who, or you don't like the health system, whatever it is, that feeling doesn't mean God doesn't know what he's doing. That just means that's your feeling. God's calling on you. God's goodness is not conditional on our feelings or our thinking. I don't feel like God cares, because if God cared, then I would be married. And then the married guy's going, well, if God really loved me, he wouldn't have let me get married so young, right? Like, he's looking at both sides, and God's like, that's not God's problem, that's yours, that doesn't change God's nature and goodness and kindness and faithfulness. It doesn't change anything of Romans chapter 8. It's a sin problem, not a God problem. Right? I think God would be good if he would do this. God would be faithful if COVID wasn't here, the Holocaust didn't happen, World War I, World War II, genocide, famine. All of a sudden we put these conditional things and say, then God would be good. What are we doing? We're creating God in our own image. God would be if. And what does Paul spend most of his time doing in the New Testament? He's going to these Roman cultures going, you worship things made with your hands. You're not the smartest. We do the same thing. That's why it's funny. We create empires and systems and media and all these little things and go, that's why I matter. That's why I'm great because I can put it together and accomplish it. We're doing the same thing. We're just not making chihuahuas and weird gods and calling it. They're not statues anymore. It's the same thing. He's going, he's like, look, that's created with it. No, 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 no. If you want a God, he's uncreated. That's a God, a creator. That's why Romans 9 he can keep his promises of Romans 8 because he's the potter and you're the clay. He's the uncreated. He can do this. You can't. Quit going to yourself. Quit drawing your own conclusions. Quit making a decision and then projecting it on God as if he's the problem. That's why Paul makes it very clear. Look, you were disobedient. Right? And he's like, look, even Israel's disobedience, right? you received mercy. Don't call them out. Don't look down on them. Their rejection of Christ as Messiah helps put him on the cross. God raises him. You have a payment for your sin now. And now you have the ability to have a relationship with God because of that rejection. So don't look down on them when their rejection actually helped you get mercy. Right? So, so God knew what he was doing, A. And B, you're missing the point. Without them, you don't have salvation. Paul's just leveling people, right? Here we go. Verse 31. So they too now have been disobedient. Jews, it's like, you're disobedient, they're disobedient, quit thinking you're better. In order that by the mercy shown to you, that's us, the church, they also may now receive mercy. Because what he's saying, he's like, the Jews are going to see these pagan Gentiles who weren't given the law, who weren't God's firstborn, who weren't there at first, make all the, and God's going to love even them. And all of a sudden, instead of looking down on them, he's going, wait, if God can save them, oh my gosh, he could save me. He's like, this act is now going to benefit them later. That hardness of heart's going to fall, and they're going to see what God's doing through the church, through his son Jesus, and they're going to see God's gift of mercy. So he's like, look, you're disobedient, you're disobedient. No one's better than anyone. Quit your fighting and realize you're both saved by grace, you're both saved by mercy, and you all need Jesus. All right? How do we know that? Look at your next part of this. For God has consigned, 132, all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on them. Consigned, confounded, everybody 
is disobedient. Nobody meets God's standard. And there's two things that can happen. There's God's mercy and there's God's justice. God's justice is hell. God's mercy is heaven. Because no one deserves it and no one can earn it. He's saying, therefore, everybody falls underneath it. That's Romans, right? For we all fall short. For all have sinned. For none are good. Have you seen how Paul's building this now? And he's coming to 11, just giving his final punch in the gut. You guys need to quit fighting. We kind of need to hear that too, don't we? Yeah? It's like, look, just because you have a particular position on politics, schooling, or vaccinations, or countries, or school curriculum, does not mean you're closer to Jesus. As much as that breaks your heart, it's not. This is what they're doing. They're just doing it in a different way. And so Paul's position is, A, God knows what he's doing, so quit going there. Two, you're not better than them. You're all sinners, and you need mercy. And then he's going to get to later, oh, don't ask for fairness. We'll get there later, right? So when you look at even the context of this word, hopefully, you know, being consigned, that's hard. Galatians 3, through 23, it helps us understand this a little bit better. Look at 22. It says, but the scripture imprisoned, that's that same word, consigned, everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He's going, look, the scripture holds, it imprisons the fact that we're all under sin. It is not a God issue, it is a sin issue. So when you don't like your life and you're angry and you're bitter, either it's a result of sin or someone's pushing it on you, no matter what, it's not God's fault. It's not his problem. It is a sin problem. Either on their part or our part, but it is a sin problem. And it's saying we're all under that same problem. And the only hope we have is so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. So it's saying the way you get out of this sin and this penalty is that you might have faith in a man named Jesus who's going to pay for your sin. And that is called mercy. You Jews, Old Testament, you look forward in faith to the payment for your sin. You look forward to the future lamb who will pay for you. Church, you look back to the man, to the Savior who paid for you. And then we're all under sin and we all look to Jesus in faith. It's going, it is a sin problem. It is not a God problem. Verse 23 in Galatians now. Now before faith came, we were held captive, captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. This is the mystery that has been revealed. It starts off in the Old Testament. We're sinners and we can't pay for it. We fall short. We fall short. The law, we fail. We need another sacrifice. Another sacrifice. We fail. We fail until Christ comes. No more sacrifices. Once for all payment. That's what they've been looking forward to. That's now what we get to look back to. And he's saying, look, what has happened to you is called mercy. You deserved hell. You're being given heaven because of Christ. Quit fighting. Everybody needs a savior. God looks down on no one and goes, ooh, I hope he picks me. I really want him to be on my team because with him I could really do some things. Really shocked me when I created him. He's really pulling his weight. He's got a lot of Facebook followers, even more Instagram followers. He might even be good at TikTok. I'm not sure. But if this guy joins my team, I'm good. And he's looking over here going, I don't know about you. Maybe I'll get back to you though, right? Because God's just, no. He knew we would fail. He knew we would sin. He created us anyway. And he says, look, I'm holy and I am just. So there's going to be a payment, but I'm also going to save. And when I save, it's called mercy. This has been his plan. He is not shocked. Now, hold on to your seats. If you're going to throw something, throw it at your text, not at me. Because the next set of verses are things that we do not like to hear. They are things we do not like to deal with. But they are the absolute truth of what God's word says. We don't like to think that God doesn't need our help. That God needs our input that God somehow doesn't need us, God doesn't owe us. We like these things, and we like to pray this way, we like to act this way, so that God is always owing us. So what Paul's laying out is like, look, God keeps his promise. It's not a God promise, it's a sin promise. And don't you ever question God again. You guys ready? You'll find out. Here we go, verse 33. 
Oh, the depth of his riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. What is he saying? He's saying, do not dare try to judge the judgments of God. Okay, let's just break this down a little bit. Do we even understand how yesterday is fully impacting today? No, most of us can't even remember yesterday, right? Like, you're just like, I don't even know. And so to think that we understand how yesterday has an implication for today, we don't even make that judgment because we're not sure. Well, God works on a much bigger scale. He knows how Adam being created and sinning affects David, which affects Christ, which affects Paul, which affects us. He's dealing with thousands of years. Can we even comprehend yesterday? No. So what is he saying? When something bad happens to you, and you want to sit there and yell at God that he doesn't know what he's doing, and you don't deserve this, and things shouldn't be like that, what if he came to you and he said, but there's going to be two million people that got saved because of this? Oh, but maybe it doesn't. What is he saying? Don't even try to judge the judgments of God because he's dealing on a scale that you can't even fathom. And if you can't fathom it, don't judge it. Don't try to act like he needs your help. And if you're going to tell me that this is what happens in the Old Testament, this is what happens with Moses, I just want you to think about this for one second. Do we really believe that God is in the Old Testament and he's with Israel and Israel's not working and he's pulling his hair out and he's like, I don't even know what I'm going to do. Moses, Moses, I'm just going to kill them all. And Moses is like, don't do it, God. And he's like, oh, thank you, Moses. Without you, I really would have went off the edge, right? And then God's like, man, I'm so glad Moses, my boy Moses was there. If I would have talked to Aaron, I probably would have killed everybody. A good thing Moses was there and now everybody gets to live. Is that really what we think's going on in the text? No, God does not need Moses' help. So then why is he talking to Moses in that way? Because Moses needed help. When something is going wrong in our lives, God does not need our help. He does not need our information. And he does not, let's keep reading, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Can you imagine if God had a counselor? Can you imagine if I prayed to God and I said, I need wisdom and all this is going on. And God's like, hey, hold on. I got to talk to Billy. He's like, Billy, Eric's really confused. What should I do? And Billy's like, oh, yeah, you got to know Eric. He's like this. Just tell him this. So then Billy tells God and God tells me. And I'm like, great. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Why talk to God? Talk to Billy because that's who God talks to. You want to talk to the guy at the top, not the bottom. Okay? You talk to God because he does know. I mean, let's really think about this. You do not want a God who needs your counsel, my counsel. Why talk to him? He doesn't know. He's just going to ask Billy. If your name is Billy, I'm sorry, right? But like, that's just, it doesn't make any sense. I want you to think about this. If you're a mom or dad right now, you're feeling the heat. Your kids are asking you questions. Your coworkers are asking you questions. Maybe even your parents are asking you questions. And you feel the weight to give the right answer, to say the right thing, to do the right thing. Do you feel that way or just me? Just me. So I feel really good about this passage, okay? Why? Because God's the one person I know doesn't need me to say the right thing, to do the right thing, doesn't need my help, doesn't need my counsel, isn't dependent on me. I'm not letting down because he needs me to come through. That's the one place I don't have to be the counselor. That's the one place I don't have to worry about that. Isn't that good news to you? Absolutely. You pray because he does know. You pray because he doesn't need counsel. Now there's this other part that we haven't talked about in that verse. For who has known the mind of the Lord? We do this. We weaponize Jesus and God. We take it to politics. Oh, you know God. He's a Democrat. Oh, he's a Republican. Oh, you know Jesus. He'd, he'd, he'd get a vaccine. He'd never get a vaccine. Jesus would homeschool. Who knows the mind of the Lord? You only know the mind of the Lord if it's been written. So where it is not written, you do not speak. Who has known the mind of the Lord? So to attribute things to God assumes that he thinks like you, thinks like me, 
What they're saying is don't do that because A, you don't know the beginning, you don't know the end, you're not the creator, you're not the potter, you're the clay, you don't know. So don't judge his judgments, don't try to counsel him, and don't try to act like you know his mind because you don't. So all of a sudden you're a Jew and you're a Gentile and you're hearing this sermon and you're like, oh, maybe we should stop fighting each other and stop attaching judgments to Christians that God never gave himself. And stop calling out people in the name of the Lord when the Lord never used that name. When the Lord never used that judgment. Just guess what? Vaccine? Not in the Bible. Your political party? It's not in the Bible. Common core? Not in the Bible. Homeschool? Not in the Bible. There's a lot of things you're just going to have to disagree. And maybe God does have an opinion, but he didn't write it down. So then we don't get to judge each other on it. And who knows the mind of the Lord? That's what I'm saying. I see some of you getting mad. Throw it out your text. Like just boom, right there, okay? I didn't write it. 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Oh, don't we do this? Oh, God, you owe me. Do you know how good I am? This is, I'm going to cash this in because I've been faithful. I haven't cheated. I go, right? All these things. God owes me. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself in a work situation. You find yourself in a school situation, a marriage situation. And you're like, God, I didn't do all this for this. And God's like, yeah, I didn't ask you to. I don't need your help. What you're doing is called obedience because you're disobedient. You follow my way because it's the better way. Right? God doesn't look down and go like, oh, wow, if he could just only give that to me, then I'd be an even bigger God. Then I'd really know what I was doing. God needs nothing. And I think we know that on, on a fundamental level, but on a subconscious level, we get mad like, this isn't how it's supposed to be. I've earned the right to not suffer, be in pain, have unappreciative workers, children, spouse, church, government, whatever that is. I don't deserve this. I've earned this. Well, why have you earned this? Well, because I've, I've purchased what? He says, no, God gives mercy. You want fair? Everybody goes to hell. That's fair. Right? Because we're all consigned to disobedience. We've all failed God's standard. Judgment is the fair thing for failing God's standard. Is it not? Absolutely. So what is, what is unfair is that God shows mercy and he saves some. So there's God's mercy or there's God's justice. You know, what he's saying is, look, you get God's mercy. You need to be excited about this. You need to quit trying to counsel him. Quit thinking he owes you something. Quit trying to tell him what to do. Quit speaking on his behalf when he has never spoken. And then he comes down in here in the 36 and he's like, look, for from him and through him and to him are all things. I don't think he left anything out in there, did he? From the beginning to the end, to the good, to the bad, to the Jew, to the Gentile, to Christ, to the end, all things he knows to him. So when you're praying, you're like, God, this is terrible. He's like, really? I'm so glad you informed me. I wasn't going to go visit America. I thought everything was fine. Right? Like he's not caught off guard. All things. So that has a lot of implications for us. And it's not that you can't like your situation, that you can't be unhappy. It's that we can no longer look at God and think he needs counsel, he needs help, that, that he would somehow be a better God if he listened to us. That, that somehow it's like, no, 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 God, I do hate this. And I don't understand. Help me trust you. Because you're praying for it to change. And I'm guessing for most of us, it hasn't changed, has it? So God's telling the Jew, he's telling the Gentile, look, deal with it. You already have the gifts you don't deserve. Mercy, grace, Christ, the church, heaven. His love never leaves. His love never forsakes. All those things are yours and they're irrevocable. So you need to trust him. And so then position yourself in a prayer to say, help me trust you. Because what is he saying to this church right here? Look, I'm going to use you. 
How is he going to do that? When we preach the mission or we preach the good news of mercy, God had mercy on me. People go, really? So yeah, if God could save me, he could save anybody. I want you to see how this doesn't work if we're not saved by mercy. So you walk up to a non-Christian, they're like, oh, you're going to heaven? Like, yep. Like, why? Oh, because I read my Bible every day. I give 20%, not 10%. I never swear. I'm always nice. I'm always kind. What's the non-Christian doing? Like, there's no way I'm going to heaven, right? Like, I stubbed my toe just 10 seconds ago. I want to kill my kids, and I hate my job. Like, woo! Right? Like, you're in trouble, aren't you? Absolutely. You're like, there's no hope for you. Versus, take the same person. And you're like, but the reason I'm saved is because God showed mercy on me. And you're like, what? You needed mercy? You're like practically perfect. Oh, no, 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 no. That's human standards, not God's. I fail his all the time. All the time. And if it wasn't for Jesus, I would have never had a payment for my sin, and I would never have mercy. Even I need mercy. You're like, whoa. The message is, if God can save me, he can save anybody. Because I was an enemy of God. I was a child of wrath. I was in opposition. Read Romans 5. While you were still enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. He still chose to love us anyway. He wasn't up in heaven hoping we would perform well. And he goes, guess what, God? They finally performed. Now I can go down and do them a favor. He goes, they will never deserve this gift. They'll never be worthy of this gift, but I will love them, send my son. He will die for them. He will rise. He will conquer and I will show mercy to those who have believed and confessed. That's good, right? He's like, now you go preach that for him and to him. God knows what he's doing. Now go tell others about mercy because to him be the glory, right? And so just to kind of walk this through a little bit, I want you to think about this. How many times have you said to yourself, if I would have known that this would be the outcome, I never would have done that. You ever been there? Okay, if you haven't, come talk to me. You're probably all-knowing and I could use your help, okay? But all of us at some point, you're like, man, if I just would have known that, I would have never made that decision. Here's what this passage is getting at. God never does that. God's never like, oh man, if I would have known that, I would have made that decision. That's why you can pray to him. He's never caught off guard. He doesn't change his mind. He's not schizophrenic. He's not forgetful. He's perfect. Don't judge his judgments understand he is perfect. You know, and I think even Hallmark gets this better than us. I really do. Like, let's think about this for a second. Hallmark's coming around the corner, and you know what you're going to see, right? You're going to see a relationship of two people that love each other, right? And then someone's going to say something like, I hate you. I wish you were never born. I wish you never married my dad, my mom. I wish you would have died in that accident. And then the angel of Christmas comes and visits them, right? And takes them off to a far place and begins to show them this is what would have happened if you were never born. This is what would have happened if they would have died. This is what would have happened if your parent married somebody else. And all of a sudden they start crying and then they go back to reality and they're like, I should have never said that, right? If Hallmark gets that, shouldn't we get that? Right, like shouldn't we get that? that God knows these things and that we don't. And there's so many times when we have no clue what's going on, so there's just times when we shouldn't say anything because if we knew what that meant, we would regret it. If Hallmark gets that, surely we should get that, right? That's what he's getting That You're not his counselor. He does not need your help. He does not need your gift. He's God. He's the potter, Romans 9. He keeps his promises. He's working his plan. Now trust him, right? He's given you mercy. To him be the glory. And then chapter 12 is going to come in and be like, now go worship. Because that God knows everything. He's given you mercy. And he loves you. And he's gifted you. And he's called you. And you have everything you need. Now go worship. Now 12 makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? Okay. So let's walk through some questions to kind of help us uh, put this into a deeper, deeper context, right? Uh, a way to help us put this all together, okay? If you want to write down in one sentence what we're talking about, God has a plan and he doesn't need our help. 
Okay? Another way to say it, just because we don't understand it doesn't mean God is lacking in any way. All right? Our feelings don't justify judging God's character. Right? We need to spend more time trying to trust God and change ourselves instead of trying to change God and trust ourselves more. Right? These are the conclusions you see as loving winds down. Okay, first question. Have you ever questioned God's judgment? And the truth is, yes, we do. And what you're going to see in the Bible is people do that in the Bible. But you also see this, like just read Job. He questions God's judgment. And then shortly after, he goes, oh my gosh, I have speaking of things that I do not understand. That needs to be our response. God, I don't know how you're good. I don't know how you could allow this. This is not okay. Whoa. I am speaking of things that I do not understand. He has shown me mercy. He loves me. He's with me. Heaven is my home. This is hard, God. And I don't trust your judgments, but I want to. I know you to be a good God that's shown me mercy and loves me. That's a different way to approach it, isn't it? It's not saying your emotions have to be perfect. It's saying, let's, let's slow your roll. Watch the way you pray and watch the way you talk to people because you're talking like you should be in charge. And you really shouldn't because you needed mercy to get here. You earned nothing, right? Two, do you think God needs your advice? If you do, stop thinking that because he doesn't, okay? That point was really easy. But why bring that up? Because our prayer sometimes is just like, well, God, if just this could happen and just that could happen, and God, I don't think you understood. If that one person did this one thing and then just this, then God, everything would come together. You ever pray like that? And it's like God's up there going, wow, I didn't realize if you put all those pieces together, that would happen. It's like saying, God, this is what I want. I hope it's what happens. But if it's not, man, I'm going to need your help to trust you. Because I don't understand how that works at all. But I know you're smarter than me. I know you're better than me. I know you love me. And I want to trust you. Do you see the difference in approaches? And you imagine if everyone's praying like this and everyone's understanding this about God, there's way more way more trusting God and way less bickering, bickering and fighting, fighting because we all of a sudden realize we don't know as much as we think we do because all of a sudden for the first time we realize I can't counsel God. I can't even counsel myself. I need God's help. Oh, me too. Okay, let's go to God's word. Then all of a sudden we're on an equal playing field. Okay, playing field. Three, do you sometimes feel like God owes you something? If you do, he doesn't. But maybe tap into why do I think that? Because the more consistently we think our behavior has purchased the hand of God, the goodness of God, the more you're going to be disappointed when your behavior has not yielded the outcome that you thought it would. All it does is make you more angry at God. And what this is saying is it's not God's fault. It's a sin problem. It's either your sin, their sin, someone's sin, but it's not God's problem. He owes us nothing. What we need to do is trust him. Trust that he's there, that he loves and he knows what he's doing. Because maybe in this situation, someone looks at your life and they're like, your life is terrible. You're like, I know. They're like, well, why aren't you angry? Because I have Jesus. They're like, if you can be, have any kind of hope, I need to know whatever it is you're drinking. You're like, I'm not drinking anything. It's called faith in Christ. Like, well, I'll do try that. Because that's how God uses and works in these situations. The problem is we just don't want to go through pain. Okay. Okay, fourth question. Is there an area of your life where you call God unfair? Because if so, we need to stop. Because fair is everybody goes to hell. It's called justice. Unfair is God's shown mercy. So let's quit calling God that. Why? Because when non-Christians look at us and they're like, oh, your God's terrible. You don't even think he knows what he's doing. Yeah, I should pray to him. His own believers don't think he knows what he's doing. They think they should be in charge. Well, I don't need them to do that. I could just do what I think he should be doing, right? The fairness of God, we ought to watch that. Five, in what area should you surrender to God and start trusting him? There's an area of your life, an area of my life, if we're all honest, that we're saying, no, this has to be this way. This is what God wants. Thinking we know the mind of God. God's saying, no, 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 no. You just need to trust me. Maybe it will turn out that way. Maybe it won't. Maybe I'll heal that. Maybe I won't. You need to trust me. 
You need to surrender that. You've tied your happiness to that far more than you should. You've tied your purpose for living to that far more than you should. You need to give that up because anything could be taken away from us at any moment except the things that God has promised. Those things are forever. They're irrevocable. And they're exactly what we need. Okay. Now, we're going to move into uh, a time of worship. And sometimes you get a topic in the Bible, like let's say we're in Ephesians 5 and we're talking about marriage and then we go and sing a worship song and you're like, how does that song tie in with marriage? And right, and then like the song's over and you're like, what happened, right? This is one of those times when the passage is just painting this beautiful, exact picture of who God is. And it's saying you can trust him. And then the song's gonna come up right behind it and give it texture and beauty. And it's gonna help you look at things like who can search his judgments? Who can know his ways? Who can know his mind? No one can be his counselor. He gives mercy, and it's going to put beauty to it. And it's going to help those words become bigger and be permanent and put pictures in your mind and really help you sing. And so it's going to be my encouragement to you that when we sing things like, uh, he wrote the laws of space and time. He wrote the laws of space and time. Do you think that guy needs our help? No, praise him. He hangs the stars like chandeliers, right? See that? It's like it's what he does with universes and galaxies of stars. Do you think that guy needs our help? He numbered all the sand, right? He knows every grain of sand. He knows the heart of every man. We don't have to worry. He knows. Then the song will go on, he is king forever. It's like, that's the king I have. That's the king who him, through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you and we praise you. That you're a sovereign king who knows what he's doing. And that whose wisdom that sometimes we don't understand. And we have such a hard time that in the mystery we need to trust you. And in the revealed things, we need to worship you. We need to praise you. In uh, the things that we don't understand, we need to work on changing ourselves and trusting you. And it's our great prayer that we can move into a time of worship and just sing to you and love you and proclaim to you because you know all things, because you are perfect, because you have shown mercy. Because no matter how crazy and bad our life is, we get to stand and sing as the adopted children who were once enemies that you have shown mercy to. That no matter what is falling apart, we at least have one reason to sing, and it's the greatest reason to sing in all the world. You're our God who has loved us and shown mercy. So it's our deep prayer that you would move in our hearts to sing in a manner worthy of your glory and your holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.